0: If you've got employees, they may be working harder for Facebook than they are for you. What really powers them is all of those reviews, and they pay nothing to the millions of people that take the time to really build up the value. But I think it's got to be a real mentality of servant leadership. I mean, if you price the same way as your competition, if you hire the same people as your competition hire, if you deliver your products and services the same roughly as your competition, you can't say that you're different.
1: Welcome to the Debunking Your Growth Mindset podcast with Sean McCainbridge. In this podcast, we will unpack practical ways to help you grow and build on your current mindset and challenge old habits so you can see the potential that's within us all and learn how to get out of your own way. Right, guys, uh, really excited. We've got uh, Vern Harnish here today, uh, internationally renowned business expert, along with people like Jim Collins, has really charted the way around unpacking how organisations and individuals have successfully scaled their business and achieved great things. Vern is the founder of the world-renowned Entrepreneurs' Organisation, with over 14,000 members worldwide now. He also chaired the EO Premier CEO Program, uh, the Birthing of Giants, uh, or Entrepreneurial Masters Program, held at MIT University in Boston. Uh, which is a program he still teaches today. Uh, He's the founder and CEO of Scaling Up, a global executive education and coaching company, Uh, and he spent the last uh, three decades helping companies scale up via this organization. He's the author of the best-selling Mastering the Rockefeller Habits, uh, which has been translated into nine languages. Uh, He's also authored the book, The Greatest Business Decisions of All Time, for which uh, Jim Collins wrote the foreword. And his latest book, Scaling Up, which is the Rockefeller Habits uh, 2.0, has won eight international book awards, uh, including the prestigious International Book Award for the Best General Business Book. And Vern also chairs the annual Scale Up Summits in collaboration with Bloomberg and serves on uh, several boards, including the chair of the Rodan Clinic, co founder and chair of Geoversity and a board member of the Million Dollar Woman's Movement. So, he also is an investor of many companies. He has four children, so he's an awfully busy man. So, I hope you really enjoy it, but uh, some great insights he impacts, but also encourage you to take the time to read his books. Uh, there's some great insights there for any individual or organization looking to really scale up and go to the next level as a business. So, uh, it's great for Vern to join us here today, all the way from Boulder, Colorado. Uh, so, along with uh, Jim Collins, you've become arguably the greatest uh, or one of the greatest exponents of studying how be- how the best companies and leaders have achieved success and with that uh, really unpack this uh, for others to benefit from. So, I'm just going to jump straight into it uh, with uh, a couple of uh, big questions right off the bat here, Vern. Uh, so, in your eyes, obviously, you've seen a lot, you've studied a lot, um, you've met a lot of very impressive business leaders across the globe. In your eyes, is there anyone that sort of sticks out as, you know, perhaps the most impressive impressive business leader and why?
0: You know, Sean, there are. And first of all, you know, Jim Collins, I I don't even want to pretend I'm in his league. I've learned (laughs) more from him and and the other thought leaders. And, you know, my expertise is in the mid-market. You know, he really did a great job with the public companies and even his last book, Uh, Great by Choice is one of my top five business books of all time for mid-market companies because with that last book, he really studied us. But back to your question, uh, I'm going to give you a big company example and then a mid-market company example. I think without a question, it's Bill Gates. Um, Bill, you know, to think, you know, today as we're doing this podcast, the company is over a trillion dollars. Which, and they're ahead of the young kids, you know, the alphabets and the Google, you know, the Facebooks and even the Amazons. Uh, Bill would clearly be the wealthiest guy on the planet next to Putin, you know, if he hadn't given away a big chunk of his change. And uh, the decisions that they have made, the way they've structured the company to not be resilient, but to be what Nassim Taleb calls anti fragile. The fact that this company's driven really by 15 thousand or so entrepreneurs, these Microsoft solution providers that are in the field like this ant colony or beehive that swarm the planet that is a business model you just can't beat. And so I, I really I don't think in our day and age there is a a smarter business leader. And even the choice he made for CEO and Nardala making the decision that we're going to move from a know it all culture to a learn it all culture. And to see their market cap triple uh, since then, again, to over a trillion dollars. There is not a finer business leader uh, on the planet, maybe next to Jeff Bezos. On the mid-market side, it's right there in your own backyard. It's Scott Fuquhar and Mike over at Atlassian. I mean, you know, they were kind enough to endorse the book. I remember when they were sitting, uh, Scott was sitting with Naomi Simpson there in my first workshop in Sydney in 2005 and i we taught them the mars mission exercise to discover their core values and to take that company public at 4.2 billion and last i checked they were skirting around 32 billion is unbelievable and it's because of their their outstanding leadership and new approach if you would to business plus their technology is really causing a revolution in the way we lead companies around the planet so that would be my two Two choices.
1: Great answer, and I want to sort of leverage that to, I guess, the uh, attributes or, or what are the common denominators in your experience uh, of the companies that consistently beat the market. You know, good economies, bad economies, but there's obviously certain companies that uh, consistently beat the market. I mean, what are those sort of common attributes in your experience?
0: Well, let's. I'm going to again answer this from two different directions. If we're just going to talk about the stock market, which I think should be of interest to the listeners. Uh, I've got a dear friend, Scott and uh, John Anderson, that really turned me on to this. It's companies that are still led by the founder. So Scott and Mike at Atlassian and Bill Gates is still in there almost full time inside Microsoft. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, if you would at Facebook and the Google boys at Google. So is the company still led by the founder? Jeff Bezos and Amazon and do they make consistently the best place to work list as Atlassian has consistently there in Australia? So to me, those are the two criteria that if you invest in only those companies, uh, you would have crushed the market over the last 30 years. Uh, Now, if you look inside, what does it take for companies to win in their chosen market space, mid or small to mid or or large size companies? I wanna really turn to what we're learning from the unicorns, Sean, the two attributes that we've been teaching us mere mortals around the planet to adopt. All these companies that scale rapidly, uh, number one, have figured out business models that tap into the broader brain power of the planet. If you think about Amazon, what really powers them is all of those reviews and they pay nothing to the millions of people that take the time to really build up the value of their, their website. At Facebook it's tied to the number of users and they've got over two billion people that are working daily to keep their business model running and they don't have to pay those people anyone in fact I anything in fact I like the kid that often uh, if you've got employees they may be working harder for Facebook than they are for you uh, even even the Apple business model you know the biggest debate that was inside Apple before Steve Jobs untimely passing was whether they really ought to do the App Store because Steve was all about controlling this closed ecosystem and to open up his technology and his babies to mere mortals he couldn't even imagine. But uh, he went with it. Uh, The guy that proposed it won the argument. And if you think about it, the reason Apple has the valuation and growth it does is because of the App Store. They open it up to millions of people to create technology that powers the devices. Uh, And so all the unicorns have figured out how to tap into a much broader set of arms, hands, legs, brains to power their business model. The second thing that they've done is they all have focused more on the demand side of the business than on the supply side of the business. None of the unicorns supply anything. You know, Airbnb doesn't own any assets. Uh, Uber doesn't own any assets Uh, Amazon, except for a few things, is selling stuff for everyone else. Uh, And they're all expert at understanding more the customer and what the customer needs next and where they're going to be next. And they leave it up to us poor suppliers to duke it out in the commodity marketplace. So Understand the demand side better than your competition and tap into more brains than just your own within the four walls of your business.
1: Now, fantastic answer. Um, And some good insights there. I just want to sort of go back to the original comment to that question and uh, that founder-led component. I mean, what what is it about that uh, founder that, in your experience or um, from your point of view, really propels a, a company forward? From you know, obviously, Steve Jobs and and was and one or two others in a garage to you know uh, multi billion dollar market cap companies. I mean, ha- what what is that uh, phenomenon? You know, from very small to very big. Um, what is that sort of component that uh, that founder brings?
0: Well, you know, it's the relationship. Sean between the founder and their baby. And that's literally how they often talk about the business. This is their child. And anyone who's a parent that's listening to this understands that that relationship uh, you have with your child is infinitely different than your relationship with any other children. And as a result, you're going to go the extra mile or, you know, 10,000 if you need to, to see them be successful. And so the passion the persistence and the bigger purpose, the three Ps we think are what make the founder so importantly powerful. And that's why Mark Andreessen Horowitz, the VC firm out of Silicon Valley, has differentiated themselves. They were the first VCs to say, you know what, we're not going to go in there and replace the entrepreneur with a professional CEO. We think it's more important to keep the founder and teach them how to be a CEO Mm. uh, than vice versa. And if we go back, by the way, to this whole, scaling up on more brains you know a mere mortal example is right there again in your backyard the father-son team behind the famous product the flow you know that they set every um uh, indiegogo record you can by you know pre-selling a quarter million dollars worth of that 600 hundred dollar device to help make it easy to harvest uh, bee honey in 15 minutes they had a million in three hours 2 million 11 hours later and when the dust settled, it sold over 12 million. And that's an example of instead of going to friends, families, and fools to raise the 70 grand they needed to get that company kickstarted, they went out to the crowd. And so these are tactics that us mere mortal, you know, two person or 20 person companies can utilize. And again, you got great examples right in your own backyard.
1: A fantastic response. Um, I think uh, everyone's searching for that high performance culture uh in their organization and obviously when you achieve that uh it's a game changer i mean from your point of view what are the key components of creating a high performance culture in your experience
0: well that is really precisely why i wrote mastering the rockefeller habits initially and then scaling up i i like to think that uh we've been able to codify all the components that are necessary in order to to create that high performance culture and that's why the forty thousand plus clients that are using our tools, we think most of those have been able to do that. You know, Tristan White, who we were talking about, whose podcast I was on, and others uh, have been kind enough to kind of credit those tools for doing it. So that's one component. Uh, I think the other component has to do with, I think the, uh, I think the approach of the leaders. Uh, with their employees. And if I could boil it down to a word, it's the word care. I think unless the, the team feels like the leaders care for them, there's no way they're going to turn around then and care for your customers, your business, uh, and your baby, if you would. And so I think it's got to be a real mentality of servant leadership. And when that is truly present, then along with the things that we talk about, particularly on our what we call our vision summary, if you've got in place just five components, everyone knows the rules, the core values. They're critical. At Atlassian, there's a great video that they have on their website if you want to look at the Atlassian core values. Again, they've had them since 50 employees, and they haven't changed. The importance of having a purpose uh, bigger than just making a lot of money. Uh, that was Steve Jobs creating a bicycle for the mind, if you would uh clear what the three brand promises are those are like the fences that rather than pin people in actually give people freedom to to make decisions right up to the edge and then this thing called the big hairy audacious goal we the team knows where they're headed uh, we know the everest that we have to climb and that's naomi simpson you know she said in that same workshop with scott and told about seventy five hundred experiences and that day said you know what i'd like to get to 10 percent of all australians There's, there were 20 million at the time so she said put a stake in the ground in 10 years i want to have sold 2 million experiences it seemed crazy at the time she stated it but she put up a scoreboard they tracked it by the minute and she beat it by two years they hit the two million mark eight years later instead of 10, and she's just reset it again, uh, I think, for 2023. So anyway, uh, those four components, you know your core values, kind of the rules, you know your boundaries, the white lines, the three brand promises, there's a purpose bigger than just making money, and we know where we're headed. And once you've got that decided, let's figure out what do we have to do today, this week, this quarter, this year, the next three to five years as we head towards that that everest
1: now great tangible examples and uh, framework uh, to that question uh, I want to dive a little bit deeper into that and sort of uh, I guess this is maybe something that uh, some uh, struggle with from time to time but how do you walk that line between that notion of high performance and accountability that comes with that and that aspect of care and empathy and connection with your your, your, your team like how do you how do you sort of balance that
0: well look there is nothing better than the win. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, wanna, you know, winning, beget, winning begets winning. And in fact, one of the yes. things that we encourage is if you've been losing for a while or your da- your culture's damaged, it's so important for you to piece together some little wins. Uh, they've mm-hmm. got to get that taste of victory back into their mouth. And as a parent, uh, one of the things I've focused on is just helping each of my four children taste real success. And the minute they get that taste in their mouth, uh, you can set them free because they will hunger for it uh, the rest of their lives. And so it's kind of a chicken and egg question, Sean. And so you want to start by, all right, what's one thing we have to accomplish today that would move the needle and then get it accomplished and celebrate it and pick something next tomorrow. It's one step at a time as you make your way up to Everest.
1: Now, good answer and, and response on that sort of side of it. Um, and, and I guess you'll just leave them down a, a little bit. Um, you talk about the the three pillars uh, to the Rockefeller habits being priorities, data, and rhythm. How does that translate to positive results for companies uh, and, and sort of how do they sort of piece together to, to move the business forward? Well, you know, so we
0: start with the first one priorities, and we all have a thousand things to do. The challenge is, is to pick what is the most important next. Again, this week, th- today, this week, uh, the next few weeks. It's the essence of the sprint that they talk about in Silicon Valley, where they've got massive projects that they have to complete, yet they break it down. As they say, you can only eat an elephant one bite at a time. They figure out what is the bite they need to take this week or, or the next two weeks And then they power on that on a daily basis. So first, let's set the priority. Then number two, we need to gather data around that, both quantitative and qualitative. It's like the thermostat in your home. Your HVAC system would just go absolutely out of control if there wasn't a device that was measuring the temperature on an ongoing basis and providing feedback to the system. And that's what your metrics do. And the qualitative feedback, which is, what are you hearing from the employees and customers? It's, it's kind of like the happy face rating system you've got. You see at restrooms at you know, top airports like Singapore that's won every customer service award you can imagine. And by real-time monitoring what's going on, they can get that restroom cleaned immediately instead of finding out a month later on some employee survey that there were problems. And then number three, it's it's nice to have this data, but if you don't get in a room and talk about it, it's often hard to make sense of it. And if we do it in reverse, if we can get in a room every day, every week, every month, every quarter, we can talk about the real facts. And many times it's the brutal facts, as Jim Collins talks about it, both quantitative and qualitatively. Then we can decide what is the priority next. And it needs to be data-driven and debate it uh, by your team. So, summarize priorities, data, and meeting rhythm have been the foundation around the execution piece
1: of the work that we do. Yeah, great, and I want to um, I want to go back to a comment you made before. Um, around the bicycle for the mind and and that was a phrase that uh, Steve Jobs coined in so much as uh, I think uh, Apple's why and and I guess that notion of why uh, was developed by Simon Sinek, uh, one of the most watched uh, TED Talks of all time Um, and uh, I I guess I just want you to sort of unpack your sort of take on why and and why is that uh, framework so powerful? I mean Starbucks talk about the the third place. Can you quickly just explain the why and uh, why it's so powerful? Yeah, I, and clearly Simon has popularized
0: it, but this idea of having a core purpose, uh, a name that Jim Collins gave to it uh, decades ago, and then these have been in place even decades before that. Uh, it's really this notion that we all have the same question, Sean, as human beings, which is why are we here? What, what difference are we really meant to make? And if people don't feel like that, they're making a difference that they're, that they're contributing to the tribe, the hive, if you would, then there's less motivation to move forward. And so this is that, that North star or Southern cross, if you would, in the Southern hemisphere, that the sailors could keep their eye on so that they could in the, you know, deepest of storms, uh, make sure that they don't get lost. And I I really enjoyed when Microsoft hit its 40th anniversary. You know, Bill Gates sent out a one-page letter to all the employees globally. And the one page was just reiterating what was the original purpose of Microsoft. And you'd expect this to be Bill Gates' word, ubiquity. But the fact that, hey, the rich can have Apple devices, but we're really creating technology for the rest of the planet. And only if it's ubiquitous that we can connect all humans can we really begin to solve some of the deepest challenges that we face. And and that's what powers a company that's got more, you know, millionaires and billionaires. I mean, you think you got a motivation problem. How would you like to try to motivate employees who don't really need to work another day in their life, including Bill Gates, but they have something bigger to get done? And that's what's powerful about the, the power of having this why.
1: No, fantastic. Fantastic. And uh, a lot of uh, commentary around that, but uh, no doubt, uh, I think that notion of why, how, and what, but really defining that uh, why is just so powerful in terms of that wider connection, but you know, I, I guess aligning people in terms of that overall or overarching sort of purpose as to why the business exists, uh, what problem it's solving, those sorts of things, whether that's for staff and I guess also customers and other key stakeholders. So good explanation there. Uh, you also talk about uh, hags. Now, a lot of people will know what hags are, but for those that don't, can you quickly explain what a hag is? And you also referenced uh, recently at our YPO uh, seminar that uh, you chaired, um, the Southwest Airlines hag of 346 planes in the air, if my memory serves me right. So just talk to us about uh, what a BHAG is and, and just maybe just unpack that 346 planes in the air. Yeah, you bet. So it, um, it was a, a
0: term that was coined by Jim Collins and Jerry Porce in their book, Good to Great. And so it's trademarked, and we, we honor that trademark. It stands for Big, Airy, Audacious Goal. It's had some other uh, related definitions that, that might be uh, more fun. And the idea is to put a stake in the ground 10 to 25, if not further out. Uh, some misconceptions, it doesn't need to have a deadline. It's just something that you want to achieve long-term, but it needs to be measurable. You, you need to know that you've accomplished it. So uh, whereas the purpose is something like a bicycle for the mind or to be the third place, doesn't mean you're going to do that for everyone. The BHAG is the measurable part of that that you want to achieve. Like Naomi Simpson wanted to change the way gifting was done in Australia. Let's give, gift people experiences that they're going to remember for a lifetime than stuff that might wilt or be eaten within a week and but the measurable part of that was but she would like to get at least two million of those experiences shared in australia over a, a decade period again which she beat by uh, two years so we go back southwest airlines and I remember we were in there working with, with them in, in the year 2000, we were bringing in executives and they were kind enough to kind of open up their doors and, and share how they did their magic. And one of the key ideas of Jim Collins is that, and, and most of the strategy professors, which is if you really want to dominate a marketplace, you have to be different. And a lot of people think they're different, but they're not really. I mean, if you price the same way as your competition, you're not different. If you hire the same people as your competition hire, you're not different. If you do the business the same way in the way you deliver your products and services, uh, the same roughly as your competition, you can't say that you're different. And one of the key metrics that Jim discovered was this, what he called profit per X. It's your unique lens or view of the industry. So let's go back to Southwest Airlines. You know, the industry typically looked at profit per seat or profit per passenger, mile. They said, let's really focus on the plane. Let's build this whole business around one plane, the, the Boeing 737. And we're going to look at pilots per plane, flight attendants per plane. Obviously, we know how many seats per plane, routes per plane, revenue per plane. And ultimately, they wanted to make sure that they maximize profit per plane, not per route, not per city, not per passenger mile, but per plane. And one of the things that we've discovered is that the I'm going to be a little technical here, Sean, but the unit measure of your BHAG should match the unit measure of your profit per x so if you're going to focus on profit per plane it made sense for southwest airlines to say rather than we want to be the largest airline or the most profitable airline or uh move the most passengers or whatever which by the way those were all things they accomplished a decade later uh it wasn't though their goal their goal was to have X number of planes and i don't remember precisely the number uh in the air by 2010 and b- by the way knowing that they could then work backwards every component of their business model and that's why it's powerful so give you one other example uh, i was just up in canada and there was a supermarket chain called loblaws and i remember meeting dick curry who turned around that canadian brand years ago and one of the key things he did is he said look The whole industry is focused on profit per square foot. And in fact, the street, uh, Bay Street in in their terms, Wall Street, obviously, in the United States, measures the success of a supermarket chain by the percent increase in revenue per square foot that they're able to generate from year to year to year. Dick said, we're going to play the game differently. Because Canada's small and most of the population's in a handful of cities, what we're going to do is focus on maximizing profit per city. And we're going to go in and analyze the city and figure out how many big boxes and organic and convenience stores are needed. We're going to drop them in, even if it poaches from some of our existing stores. We could see profit per square foot actually drop in several of our stores as long as we are straining out of that city the most profit per city relative to our competition. And in fact, they had to educate the industry, uh, Bay Street, because their stock took a huge hit as they were making this transition. But ultimately, they had set a BHAG to be the most respected supermarket chain in the world. They accomplished that. And it had to do with the fact that they looked at the industry different. Uh, through this Profit Per
1: X and then a related BHAG. Now, I think there's some great uh, components in there. And just to sort of paraphrase some of the things that you touched on, I think that notion of BHAG, it's something bigger to drive towards over a longer horizon uh, for the organisation to drive towards. But I guess, you know, in the instance of uh, Southwest Airlines, 346 planes in the air, that's something that resonated to anyone, whether that was a pilot, whether that was someone at... Uh, on customer service, whether that was, uh, you know, uh, someone uh, serving on the plane, it was that notion that everyone could connect to, because some people connect to profit, some people connect to other metrics, but everyone could connect to the fact that, you know, once we as an organisation get to 346 planes in the year, we've reached our BHAG, and we did a similar one with Stella many years ago, and it was uh, 20,000 placements by 2020, proud to say we've just got there, but it was uh, that notion of changing 20,000 lives in the, in the context of recruitment, um, that everyone could sort of uh, connect with, whether it was our front receptionist or COO or our sales staff. So um, I think a, a really good sort of example there. And also that last piece around to beat your competition, you've got to look at things differently. I think that's a, a really interesting thing in a, in a world where there's so much commoditized uh, activity or business out there. Uh, you really want to see it to be different, to sort of stand out.
0: Well, and and I want to unpack a couple of things, Sean, with that. A couple of questions we get around BHAG is, well, wait a second. The world is moving so much faster, it feels. Mm. Um, Mm. How can anyone have any visibility into 10 years? But even Mark Zuckerberg, uh, as much as their industry is in transition and under attack and everything else, uh, Mark set out a 10-year vision for the organization it again is a, a point that they can move towards. It's not going to be a straight line, trust me. Uh, like a river going from Everest to the ocean, it's going to have to wind its way around a lot of, a lot of rocks uh, that are in the way. But uh, even if there's lots of change within an industry, as there was even in the airline industry, going through 9-11 and all the other stuff, you want to keep your eye on the prize. And the second is, why 10 years? And you want to be far enough out, Sean, that Nobody can debate you. You know, if you if you pick a shorter time horizon, then folks will get in all kinds of debate about whether we can do it or not. Uh, and there's that old phrase, people way overestimate what they can achieve in a year, but they way underestimate what they can achieve in, in a decade. And you want to take advantage of that kind of
1: human condition, if you would. Absolutely. Just moving past uh, that uh, great response on your part, Uh, I just want to ask, how important is that notion of line of sight for employees and and really achieving, you know, that uh, faster rate of scale uh, than a normal organization? Just unpack that if you wouldn't mind. Well, uh, it was a term we borrowed from Jack
0: Stack, a great game of business, and it was highlighted in the original kind of Marcus Buckingham research that was done when he was at Gallup. And they wanted to look at, all right, you know, why is it that people quit companies? And. And they really boiled it down to kind of the, the, the famous Q12 questions, but then they narrowed it down and said, there's kind of four that trump the 12, and then there's one that trumps them all. And those top four, number four was pay. So it does matter. And if you don't have the other three, then it goes right to the top. You better pay me a lot because you're not doing the other three. But number three was a sense of appreciation. Do I, do, am, I am I appreciated? And recognized and and the like. Number two was this equivalent of line of sight, and that's what ties in into number three. Can I see how what I do? ties into the bigger goals of the company. And our our one-page vision summary does that. We start at the top with the broader vision, the four components I shared. Then what are the priorities this quarter, this year, and the next three to five years? And then underneath that, the bottom third of that page, is where you then sit down with every employee or team and say, all right, given the long, medium, and short-term vision, how can you contribute over the next 90 days? And Because there's nothing worse than toiling away in the bowels of the organization and feeling like what you do doesn't matter and doesn't contribute and doesn't connect to the broader bigger goals of the organization and so it kind of comes back to do i matter and that's one of those other fundamental human questions and so creating this direct line of sight between your activities and where the company's going is hugely motivational And then the number one was uh, what Mark has called play to your strengths. And that is, do I get to do things that give me energy instead of making me tired, that actually give me strength? So number four, pay. Number three, appreciation. Number two, line of sight. Number one, then do I get to play to my strengths? And if I don't get the first three, you better pay me a lot of money.
1: Now, again, uh, great answer and all makes sense in terms of that sort of wider emotional sort of buy into the contribution to the wider organisational sort of goals or, or metrics. So um, I think uh, good insights there. Um, obviously, you work and have seen a lot of quality and experienced leaders in action and doing great stuff at the other end of the spectrum if you've got individuals that are aspiring to be the next uh you know bill gates uh, zuckerberg uh, steve jobs or even you know some of the really quality mid-cap or smaller organizations we know many you talked about one earlier uh, a good buddy of our uh, the, the two of us and, and tristan white down in melbourne or naomi simpson who's now running a big company but i mean what are your tips or advice to aspiring young leaders
0: yeah or even glenn richards you know glenn's been a then yeah. scaled up a couple of companies using our tools which is why he's been you know chairing our scale up master's program that we're running there in australia so we've been super excited about easy pay many 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 brands uh that have become kind of well known in australia you know got their start with with our tools um well you know it, i i would have them read scaling up uh, it's why i wrote the book there's there's all this education around how to start things, and there's eleven thousand startups every hour in the world. We don't really need more new companies, and yet there seems to be, you know, a university program and an incubator on every corner of the planet. And I have an MBA, which is supposed to teach you how to run big companies, but there really wasn't the education of what do you do between startup and grown up? How do you scale up? And so I'd launched this executive program at MIT back in 91, 92 and chaired it for 15 years. And that was my crucible for testing these ideas on a thousand plus uh, entrepreneurs that were scaling up. And I was able to kind of hone the tools, which ultimately led to the books that we've been, been talking about, the most recent being Scaling Up. And, and it's cool. We've, we've sold over 400,000 copies uh, globally, it, it is a, a bona fide success, and I think it's because we've been able to quantify what it takes, and more importantly, you know, it takes a village of thought leaders. Sean, uh, as you know, I reference over forty different other thought leaders, like Jim Collins and Marcus Buckingham and and Simon Sinek and others that we've talked about. Uh, no one person has all the exam has all the answers, and so it takes this village of, of thought leaders that you need to learn from. And that's why the single most important discipline, if we really boil it down to that, if you want to be a great leader, uh, is your commitment to learning and development. Uh, Bill Gates had his famous Think Weeks where twice a year he'd take his what I call Tower of Guilt. His record was 112 books, manuscripts, PhD theses, white papers. And for 18 hours a day, for seven days straight, he would just plow in the information. And this is what allowed him as a leader and his company to remain relevant in a very Mm -hmm. fast-changing environment. Mark Cuban. Who I've known from his early days, I have had a little IT services company. It goes on to own 155 different companies. The multi-billionaire Mark, since he was age 20, Sean has read three hours a day, and even when he got married, his prenups like, "Hey, I, you, can, you know, I'll give away my furniture, sweetheart, but not <laughs> the three, but not the three hours that I want to read every day, looking for one idea that might give one of those 155 companies that he owns or invests in." A leg up. Mark Zuckerberg, you know, a book every two weeks. Uh, Bill Gates publishes his list of the 50 books that he reads. Warren Buffett, 500 pages a day that he consumes of uh, mainly headlines of newspapers from around the globe, which gives him a good gut feel for where the next investment opportunities are. So it's truly this simple. It, it is this investment in your own learning and development uh, it's it's what's between your ears that is really either what will constrain you or give you that leg up over the competition.
1: Now, awesome answer. I, I love the fact that uh, what I sort of boil it down to is, you know, be inquisitive, uh, you know, have that commitment to learning and invest in your own growth. So I think uh, some awesome examples and it's probably a timely reminder. For those that listen to uh to make that time i think uh, the world's getting busier it's getting faster there's a lot competing for our time but you know perhaps most importantly in the business context or career context making that time to continue to learn and develop and expand your knowledge and, and obviously your books and some of those other books out there that you quoted are a great way to um uh, to achieve that, so we're nearing the end of the podcast, and uh, and obviously you've achieved an awful lot. Uh, you've had exposure to some of the most amazing companies and organisations and leaders out there in the business world. If you were to reflect back to a young twenty-one old, a twenty-one year old Vern Harnish, knowing what you know now, what would you communicate to that individual? I mean, there's no doubt you've achieved a lot, but uh, what words of uh, wisdom or advice would you pass down? Um, You know, I
0: think it's twofold. Um, You know, one thing we've been, I'm going to be kind of very specific given the age that we're in right now. Uh, You know, the trends make you or break you. And right now, the whole population on the planet is aging. Uh, And as a result, probably the biggest opportunity is there's about 3 million companies around the globe that need to change hands and the owners don't have children that want to kind of take them over. And so I would buy instead of build. I mean, to start and get to your first million is really hard. Only 4% of uh, entrepreneurs get it done. The odds are pretty much against you. But if you can go out and buy an existing business and then apply some of these 21st century management practices to it i think it's a much quicker way and so my partner john ratliff scaled his call center business by uh Mm -hmm. doing 24 acquisitions from you know older entrepreneurs that were tired of the business and he was able to bring youthful energy uh to that industry and then i think the second uh was really the advice that i received from regis mckenna when i was I was 24 at the time and Regis was the coach to Steve Jobs and Intel and Genentech and most of Silicon Valley. And he said, look, Vern, if you want to get anything accomplished, take a piece of paper out and make a list of the 25 people or brands that you need to attract and associate with whatever it is you're trying to scale. And it's exactly what I did when I launched the entrepreneurs organization and you know, you know, from President Ronald Reagan to Steve Jobs to Michael Dell to the owners of ink and Venture Magazine, the two most important publication in our world, and I, I worked through that list of twenty-five. And Sean, we were global within thirty-six months. So, yeah, don't do it alone. Go out and uh, find people to help you, and they will if you've got a really clear and compelling.
1: Uh, vision. Now again, uh, I think uh, a great answer, and, and I think uh, in short, Vern, uh, you've done a wonderful job of, I think, uh, de-risking, unpacking, demystifying how companies and individuals have successfully scaled their organisations for many other people to benefit. Obviously, you've had a massive impact through your uh, sharing of these learnings, whether it's uh, you know via London Business School, EO, YPO, the many other organisations or frameworks that you sort of speak to. Further to um, the books that you've written and distributed, so I think you've had a wonderful impact. No doubt, there's plenty of energy and lots to do, and you've got a clear plan of what that looks like. Further to having uh, four children and and your many other endeavours, so. I commend you for, for what you've done, what you've achieved and what you're sharing. Uh, there's many other people that have benefited. And I think uh, one of the things you sort of talk about is, uh, you know, the legacy that at the end of it all. And I think you sort of alluded uh, recently at that YPO session was how many people have you positively impacted um, you know, through what you do in life. And I think there's no doubt you've impacted thousands and thousands and thousands of people. So uh, thank you very much for taking the time to join us all the way from uh, Boulder, Colorado, and uh, and making time in your busy schedule. So there is some great takeaways, great learnings, but uh, really appreciate your time there, Vern. I
0: right. Sean. I appreciate it. And if you if you don't mind, I another idea came to me for the twenty one year old. If if we've got yeah. time to share, there <laughs> you yeah, go. Yeah, of course. And, and no, I and here I I, I think it's really important. Uh, and it was Cal Newport who was the one who highlighted this for his generation, his new generation. You know, people really get confused by this idea that you're supposed to follow your passion. Mm. Uh, because the reality is 99% of the people on the play have no idea what they're passionate about. That's true. And that's and that's not how it's done. It's getting the cart before the horse. You know, Steve Jobs, trust me, was not passionate about computers. Uh, that's not why he got into it. It was his buddy, Wozniak, that kind of dragged him to the first meetings And what Cal Newport points out is this, just start doing stuff. And one day you're going to bump into something that you actually find you're good at, that you're having some success with. And then it'll become your passion. I guarantee you if Steve Jobs had run into some real walls and not been able to raise those initial funds from Don Valentine and and have some of those first early successes selling those, you know, 20 PCs to that guy at the Stanford, you know, local bookstore or whatever the name of the store was, he probably would have got bored out of his mind quickly and pivoted to something else. But he started to have success. And success again begets success. So don't get caught up thinking you gotta sit around staring at your navel and figure out what you're passionate about. Just start doing stuff, and then you'll discover that passion
1: once you start to taste a little bit of success. I well, think that's a fantastic answer and it's been something I've been thinking about for a while with my I also have four children. Uh, but what I want to do with my four children is expose them to a range of different things through my network, whether it's property development, accountancy, um, you know technology, uh, whatever it is. And then in doing so, maybe they will gravitate towards something, but getting uh, exposure to a range of different occupations, industries, pastimes, careers, whatever, uh, I think uh, everyone's different. And I think having that exposure, often you have exposure to what your parents do, what your immediate uh, parents' family do, but you don't have a wider awareness of what else is out there. So I think that exposure and doing stuff to stumble across what could be your passion, I think it's a fantastic idea. So I think that's a a really powerful takeaway um so yeah so thanks for all those powerful uh, insights and learnings uh, i've got no doubt there'll be a lot of value for those that take the time to listen to this podcast then but uh, keep up the great stuff and look forward to bumping into you in the future no doubt um but grateful for your time
0: well you too sean you know the effort you go to to take your schedule to do these interviews to share this knowledge To give back to your community is is commendable. People think this stuff's easy, but you know, just what we had to go through to kind of get this thing scheduled across the ponds. Uh, (laughs) And so, you know, thank you for going to the effort to do this. I appreciate it.
1: So, just in closing, guys, uh, really exciting and insightful uh, podcast with Vern today. Covers a lot of tangible aspects around how. Companies and individuals have achieved success in the business context. Uh, I'd really encourage individuals to reach out and read his books to further unpack some of those key learnings. But there's no doubt his broad exposure over the last three decades to some of the most amazing companies in the world. Uh, There's some great takeaways there. So I trust that you enjoy. Um, If you're so inclined and you see the value, uh, feel free to pass this on to anyone else who might benefit from the podcast or take the time to rate or reference uh, via your podcast channel uh, the show Um, and if there's any questions or queries uh, or feedback that you can provide in so much as the podcast uh, we'd love to hear from you so reach out to me personally direct message that'll be fantastic so thanks again for taking the time to listen and I hope you enjoy it